wrapping up a series within a series. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, the better part of this year. And so for the last five, four weeks, this is our fifth week now, we've been looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. All right, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we get to wrap that up. And if I was to summarize just everything that we've been learning, I'd say it like this. Regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are given uh, to us, they are given for us, and then they are given to display the richness of who God is. All right? If I was to summarize uh, everything that we've heard in these last four weeks, I would say that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to us, then they are given for us, and then they are given to display the richness of who God is. And so we wrap up our series within a series talking about love. We're going to be in uh, chapter 13. Uh, of 1 Corinthians, a, a chapter that many of us know, we've probably heard it read out at weddings, and uh, it's a, a passage that people love to go to when talking about love, uh, and I'm going to try to unpack it in a way that it would be meaningful to us as we wrap up the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. We normally preach from the ESV, but because this is a passage that's well known that I think a lot of people uh, have read over and over again, I wanted to read it from a different translation, one that still remains very true uh, to the original language, but it's something slightly different. And so what I'm going to do is something that I love to do is I'm going to read the passage to us, and then I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me, asking that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. And so if you have your Bible, meet me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It'll be up on the screen as well. And remember, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Hear these words of our Father. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful that it continues to transform the individual lives of people. And so I'm asking that your word uh, would do that this morning that you would meet us where we are. Father, I pray against any distractions here this morning. Pray that we would see you for who you are. And so, Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they be a sweet fragrance to you. God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. We're talking about love. 
the Greek word agape, uh, which means uh, unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the love that we experience from Jesus. And as we'll see this morning, it's, it's the love that we are called to engage and share with others. This unconditional, sacrificial love, agape. And so there's three things that we're going to see from the text this morning. We're going to see the preeminence of love, big word, preeminence of love. We're going to see the practice of love, and then we're going to see the permanence of love. Those are the three things that Paul is going to unpack to us this morning. So let's start with the first one, the preeminence of love, the superiority of love, the, the high value that we are supposed to have of love. This is what Paul says in making this point. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm not going to go too much into this regarding tongues because Jono did a phenomenal job last week unpacking this. But what Paul is saying here is like, listen, um, with tongues, if there's going to be a, a public demonstration of tongues within the gathering, then it must be, it must be accompanied with interpretation. And so Paul is making the point here that if there is no interpretation, then that means that there is no love. You could be saying some amazing things, but if there's no interpretation in the public gathering, then there is no love because everyone will be seated there but have no understanding. They'll be missing out on the richness of what God has for us. They must be love. He goes on to say in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, all mysteries and all knowledge. I, I love his play of words here. I love what he's doing here. Who has knowledge of all mysteries? Who possesses all knowledge? God. Only God knows everything. And so he's saying, listen, if, if you are like God, if you want to maybe call yourself God, right? but you have no love, then it means nothing. We know that God is love. Scripture tells us that over and over and over again, God is love. But God is also all-knowing. All-knowing. And if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So not only are you omniscient, which means to be all-knowing, but also to be all-powerful that I could move mountains, if I possess this faith that, that allows me to do incredible things, if I don't have love, Paul says that I, I am nothing. I'm absolutely nothing. He's making big theological statements here. Massive theological statements that we need to understand, that we need to root ourselves in if we truly are going to understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, and if I give away all my possessions... And if I give over my body in order to boast, if I give away all my possessions, everything that I have, this idea of being sacrificial, I want to be sacrificial, I, I want to serve, I want to give all my possessions. If you have no love, it means nothing. In fact, if you're a person who is always giving, but you're not doing so from a position of love, then you're just another benevolent oppressor. You're just another benevolent oppressor because in there you're giving in hopes of getting something in return. Maybe you're wanting to be controlling. Maybe you, you want people to see you almost as the savior. 
you're not doing so from a place of love. And so Paul is like, well, then it means nothing. All that you give will mean nothing. This is why Kenny comes up here and he says, listen, we should prayfully think about what we want to give. Because you could give everything, even here to Rooted Fellowship, but if you don't do so in love, it means nothing. But he even goes further. He says, and if I give over my body in order to boast. Now this word boast is not in the negative sense. It's not in the, in the prideful sense. It's, it's boasting in the sense of wanting to give God glory. He's saying, even if I give my body over, to be a martyr, if you will, that, I, that I'm willing to die for what I believe in, but, but if there's no love there, then that's a wasted life. It's a wasted life. It, if it's not done from this place of wanting to do so unconditionally, sacrificially, and he says it here, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. This is so important for us to understand if we are to fully grasp the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have all these gifts and, and all these abilities and, and maybe we, we put them in service of the body. But if we have no love, if we are not driven and sustained by love, then it means absolutely Nothing. Not 70%, not 60%, not 50%. It means absolutely nothing. It's as if you did nothing. It's as if you didn't give or you didn't serve. Or you didn't come up here and prophesy and give a word. It's like you did nothing. It's like you weren't even present. That's the point that Paul is making. He's, he's wanting us to have a high view of love, the preeminence of love. When talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we must be driven and sustained by love. The preeminence of love. And so he cements that in the minds of the Christians in Corinth. He's, he's wanting us to understand that, to be rooted in that. But then he then transitions to our second point this morning, which is the practice of love. The practice of love. Now, if I was to be honest, I would say this is one that not only I, but I think all of us struggle with. The practice of love. It's incredibly difficult for us to, to grasp this and to, to understand it and then to live out from it. It's, it's hard, the, the practice of love. And here's why. Here's why I believe many, if not all of us, battle with this. It's because at some point in our lives, we've been abused in the name of love. We've been abused in the name of love, whether it's physically or verbally, emotionally or mentally or spiritually. At some point in our lives, we've been abused in the name of love. And so we battle to understand how we are to practice love. In fact, the great Tina Turner did a phenomenal uh, diagnosis of the culture in fact, I believe she was singing this great song out of personal experience of having been abused in the name of love. And so on the 1st of May, 1984, this incredible song was released to the world, almost telling us what we already know and believe. In fact, the first verse goes like this. You must understand that though the touch of your hand 
makes my pulse react. And that's not in a good way. That it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. And then she goes into the famous chorus that I'm sure all of us know. Oh, what's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Yo. Y'all kill me, man. Like, people will be up here preaching killer sermons, and you'd be like, so good, so good. And I ask you to sing Tina Turner. Woo! That's my song. What's love got to do with it? This is something that many of us say. We may read the beautiful promises that are found in here, but because of the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, we'll ask ourselves, well, what's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And so we, we struggle in this, this practice of love. See, I believe that this was true in Paul's day. And so he finds it necessary to unpack the practice of love, a, a healthy biblical practice of love. And so this is what he says. Love is patient. And studying this passage this past week, um, it was kind of a different week, a tough week, uh, because like many other weeks, I, I read the passage and I, I just kind of move through the motions. I'm like, well, love is patient. Write that down. Love is kind. Love does not envy. But, but I felt the Holy Spirit going, no, 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 don't go over this too quickly. And I'm like, wait, Holy Spirit, I need to get through this work. I don't have a lot of time. He's like, no, no, don't go over this too quickly. Love is patient. Don't fly over this too quickly. Love is patient. And I know he's speaking to me. I, I, I wasn't an audible voice. So, but anyway, he's speaking to me and he's, he's like, I know that you want to get through this because you want to teach people. You want to unpack the scriptures to people, but it needs to come from a place of devotion. And so in the same way that you are wanting to see the gospel shine light in the areas of darkness in people's lives, it needs to first do that in you. And so love is patient. Sit in that for a moment. Unpack that. Love is patient. And so I was like, okay, Holy Spirit, it's going to be one of those weeks. Love is patient. And so what does the word patient mean? The, the Greek word, makrothemeo. Paul uses this Greek word, but, he, but he's borrowing from the Old Testament understanding of patience. One of the attributes of God, he's, he's taking from the Old Testament where, where it speaks of God as one who is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. I was like, okay. I began to read different other translations because I like to do that. I like to hear from different voices, if you will. And, and I love the old English translation where it says, love suffereth long. That's good. It's very Shakespeare-ish-ish-ish. Love suffereth long. That love suffers for a long time. It's patient. 
Now, the Holy Spirit wanted me to pause there for a moment because for the longest of time, I've always thought I was a patient person. I really did. I was like, mm, don't struggle with that. Until we planted rooted. And then God was like, okay, I'm going to expose some things. I'm going to bring some things to the surface. You are not a patient individual. It's like, are you being for real? You are not a patient individual. Listen, I'll put my laundry out there. Because here's what life is like at Rooted for me. I have people come and go, hey, man, I feel like, you know, we're not reformed enough. I'll be like, okay, then I'll, I'll preach line by line. Hey, man, when are we going to do topical sermons? Okay, we'll do some topical sermons. Hey, man, I feel like we're not transcultural enough. Okay, how can we figure that out? Hey, man, I feel like we, we don't talk about race enough. Wait, 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 we talk way too much about race. Hey, man, we don't talk about the, the gender inequality that exists in our world. Hey, man, I feel like we're talking about women a lot, hey? Like, seriously, like, a, hey, I feel like we're, we're not charismatic enough. Yo, man, like, just conservatism, please. Like, can we be conservative? Like, at some point, I, like, literally, I'll stop and I'll go, hey, Holy Spirit, can we have a chat? Um, I know you wanted us to plant a church. Great, great idea. Uh, gospel-centered disciple-making, absolutely believe in those things. Uh, but I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say transcultural? Like, because maybe you were saying transparent, and I misheard you. Because we can be a transparent church all day, every day. Or maybe you, you meant transatlantic, that you wanted us to, to have deeper relationships with the churches in the States, because we could definitely, and, and then, and then he, he points me to the verses that say, all nations, all nations, all nations, all nations. And I'm like, okay totally get it uh, as you were Holy Spirit and I come back and it's like, hey man, our kids ministry isn't doing well enough. Oh, oh, okay, hey, we don't talk about marriage enough. Okay, let's talk about marriage. Hey, what about the singles? What about, okay, let's talk about the singles. Parenting, we do nothing on parenting. Okay, man, like, whoa. And then in those moments, I just want to be like, you know what? <laughs> Maybe you should go plant your own church. But the Holy Spirit's like, reel it in, on it, reel it in. I'm not a patient individual. A and I'm pretty sure you aren't as well. I was going to do a show of hands, but let's not do that. I love the fact that Paul starts with love is patient. He wants us to recognize that we fail at this. And in failing in this, we're going to fail at every other one that he lists. It's like a domino effect. Uh, let me show you. Because I lack patience, the next one is love is kind. Well, I don't want to be kind anymore. I don't. Ever stood at a line at a government office? Eventually, when you get to the front and the person is like, hello, you're like, we're not kind anymore. Love does not envy. When I'm not patient on the Lord's work in my life, I start to do this. God, what are you giving other people? What do they have? How come she has and I don't? And God is like, no, hold on, I'm, I'm working with you. No, but, but why does she, why does she, I cum laude my degree and why... We begin to envy what other people have. It is not boastful. This is now the negative one. But boy, are we boastful. Boy, are we boastful. 
when others are envying what we have, we acknowledge that and we feel like it's an opportunity instead of going, hey, I just want to let you know that God is at work in your life. It's, yeah, 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 he's, man, he's hooking me up. Yeah. You know, I'm just a humble servant, you know, just trusting in the Lord, you know, it's, he's, he's good, you know, look at all of that I have. Paul says, no, love is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. The arrogance that we possess, how rude we can become. When we lack patience, we are incredibly rude. And, and we're smart, right? Highly educated, highly competent, middle-class South Africans. We show up to a fight with a smile on our face. Like, have you seen those people that they like walk in the room and you're just like, whoa, like why? Hey, how are you? But inside, there's so much anger, so much frustration, and they've allowed it to take over. And so that every engagement and every relationship is it's littered with arrogance and rudeness. Love is not self-seeking. It's not self-seeking. It's not always thinking about itself. It wants to give. It's always thinking, how can I give? How can I serve? How can I share? I'm not like that in most days. And again, like, because we're cunning, we're good at this, we'll do things, but if you were to really take an x-ray of my heart, I'm doing it so that I might be more controlling over you. I'm doing it so that you might like me more. Why? So that I might be more controlling. Love is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. You know those people? The ones that you don't want to be around because they're just they're like always ready to do something. It's like I'm always ready to fight. I'm in fight mode the whole time. And so you'll be having a great time walking in. Woo! Whoa. Yeah, okay, maybe not today. Let me not go to that person because they're always irritable. They're not driven by love, but they are driven by themselves. And so because they're not getting their way, I don't know where it could be, whether it's at home or at work, they bring it here into the body of Christ. And so they're like a time bomb waiting to explode. And you might be that unfortunate person who maybe forgets to say hello. Oh, okay, so we're not greeting anymore. It's like, I, I, just, I, I, I. Paul says, no, love is not irritable. It does not keep record of wrongs. It does not keep record of wrongs. This is the hardest one for us. This is the hardest one for us. It's hard for me. Like, as I engage with arguments with my wife, I'm just like in the back of my mind trying to like, Okay, memory, memory, memory. What about that one time, like seven years ago, uh, when I was about to propose and that happened? I could bring that up. Like, Paul says, love does not keep record of wrongs. If you've forgiven someone, then you've truly forgiven them. That you're done, that it's finished, that it's over, that you don't need to bring it up again. It keeps no record of wrongs. And then he says in verse 6, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the truth. 
It finds no joy in unrighteousness. This is a word that we need to hear today in 2017 South Africa. Because sometimes we find ourselves rejoicing when, when bad things are happening to people who look different to us. We almost feel like we are now justified. Right? But, but Paul says, no, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Even in our enemies, we should find no joy in unrighteousness. Now, it doesn't say that we, we shouldn't say anything when we see injustice. That's not what Paul is saying. But it rejoices, love rejoices, love rejoices in truth. And so we are to speak truth in love, where there is no love. Paul makes a request that you don't say anything. Just don't say anything. If you know what I'm about to say lacks love, then don't say anything. Don't say anything. Because that is not how love operates. He then goes on to say love bears all things. Love bears all things. The, the word can mean either to bear up under or to protect by covering. See, if it has the first meaning, then it would be the same as endures all things that we see later. So I prefer the second meaning, to protect. That love covers this, this protection. Love doesn't broadcast problems of others. Love doesn't run down others with jokes and sarcasms and put-downs. Love defends. Love defends the character of the other person as much as possible within the limits of truth. Within the limits of truth. Love bears all things. Then he goes on to say love believes all things. I love the NIV translation here. It says love always trusts. This does not mean that we are to be naive or gullible. It does mean that love is not suspicious and doubting of the other person's character. It doesn't walk in going, mm, I, I don't know. I don't know. If trust has been broken, then it needs to be earned again, step by step. I agree with that. But love believes that the other person is innocent until proven guilty. And if there is a problem, love doesn't jump immediately to blame the other person. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It is not pessimistic. It does not expect the one loved to fail, but to succeed. Love refuses to take failure as final. It doesn't look at people and just be like, oh, absolute failure, I'm not going to engage you. It's over, it's done. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. Now, I know it doesn't ignore reality. I'm not saying that. It doesn't close its eyes to problems but it rests on the promises of God that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so love will always, always hope. It'll always, always hope. And then he says love endures all things. The word endures is a, a military word meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy. It has the idea of holding up under trial or persevering in spite of difficulties, to endure. It means that love hangs in. It is not a passive attitude. It is a positive, triumphant spirit that sticks it out. It doesn't just check out when things get hard. It sticks it out. How we need this in the church, because I believe that there's an epidemic among us Christians that we bail out of tough situations. 
oh, my community group is really, really tough. I'm just going to check out. Church is really, really, really challenging. I'm just, I'm just going to check out. And, and the city that we live in, where it feels like there's a church on every single corner, it's like a spiritual buffet out there. Mm, I don't like this. I'll just go over there. And so we move from one church to the other church to the other church. Why? Because we have failed to believe that love endures all things. This is the practice of love, friends. This is something that we fail at every single day, but are called to it. We are called to it. This this biblical love, this agape. So Paul lays it out. He, He cements us first with the preeminence of love, the superiority of love, and then he says, okay, well, this is how we are to practice love. This is what love looks like tangibly in our everyday lives. He lays it out. And then lastly, he he talks to us about the permanence of love. The permanence of love. In verse 8, when he says love never ends, the permanence of love. See, unlike love, prophecy, speaking in tongues and knowledge, unlike all these things, love will not come to an end. Read with me, verse 8, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. See, in chapter 14, and we saw this last week when Jonah preached, Paul made it clear that prophecy is a greater gift than tongues. He makes that point. He lays it out. He says, prophecy is a better gift than tongues. However, when the kingdom of God comes fully, prophecy will no longer be required. That's what Paul is saying here. And when the kingdom of God comes fully, prophecy will no longer be required. That in this world, those with the gift of prophecy reveal the will of God to people. And, and friends, we welcome them. We're, we're a church that believes in prophecy. However, in the kingdom of God, we will know God's will without the help of the gift of prophecy. So it'll come to an end. The same will be true of speaking in tongues. and Specifically, the, the revealed knowledge of God. These are gifts related to the revealing and establishing of God's will. They are important in this world, but will be irrelevant in the next. Why? Because we will know God's will completely. There is coming a time where we will know God's will completely. So even though the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are God-given, they are nevertheless incomplete. God reveals what the person needs to know to carry out God's purposes, but it's limited, friends. It's limited. That's why Paul says in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When the perfect comes, the the Greek word here is, is teleos. A better translation is when the complete comes, the whole comes, the unblemished comes, the undivided comes. He's speaking of Jesus and his second return or his coming return. He's contrasting the perfect, the complete with the partial. When Christ comes again to usher in the kingdom of God in all his fullness, we will have no need for such things as prophecy, which give a partial revelation for us now. He uses two illustrations to make this point. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish ways. See, some would read this verse almost 
as a rebuke to the Christians in Corinth. As a rebuke because they've, they've failed. Put away childish things. That's how they would read it and understand it. That, however, I believe is not Paul's intention. He's instead comparing the world that we live in now and all that we experience almost as childish. He compares us as spiritual children. That's what he calls us. That for those who have crossed the line of faith and, and live in this world now, we're like spiritual children. And the world that is to come, which we will experience as spiritually mature. So we're living now in this world and, and we're like children. We're experiencing all these things like children, but there's a, there's a time coming when Jesus returns that we will be spiritually mature, like adults. Once that new world comes to be, the things that seem important to us, such as prophecy and knowledge and miracles, and the list goes on and on and on, will become unimportant. They will be childish. They will be childish. That's, that's what Paul is saying. It's a little bit like this. Some of you guys remember as kids growing up watching Sesame Street, right? Anyone used to watch Sesame Street? Yeah, yeah, good, good show, very educational. As a child, it was phenomenal. I used to love it. Big Bird and um, the really dirty guy that lived in the bin. Uh, incredible stuff. Maybe Sesame Street wasn't your thing. Bugs, Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck was my guy. Like, I just always felt like that guy just got the raw end of the stick. Like, I'm like, oh, dude. It was good stuff we used to watch as children. Or maybe, maybe some of you guys grew up watching Lucilo. Anyone, anyone grew up watching Lucilo? Man, that show was off the chain. Used to come on uh, TV One, right? That was like before the SABCs. And the guy with the patch used to smoke the pipe, would take out that, that, that bone. I don't know what it was from, from inside his shirt, and he would go, he'd go, and it was always three times. Like, I don't remember a lot from that, that story, like the things and characters, but I remember he would blow into that three times. And then you would hear, Lucille. Lucille. I was like, what on earth is happening? Like, I, I was the kid hiding in between the couches. I know I wasn't supposed to be watching this show, and, and this... So Lucilo's like, it's his uncle who died, and so he's a ghost, comes out of the grave. And, so, and he's on some, mm, 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 mm. Guys, I was not ready. I was, I was not, I was like, what on earth is happening? But every week, without fail, I was there. That show came on a couple, couple years ago, um, and I was watching it, and I was like, Really? Like, that's what I used to be afraid of. How childish. Be because today we now have full HD. We have composers who are working the sound for these things. Things have changed. As an adult, I'm just like, look, Lucido played an incredible developmental, uh, like it, was, it contributed to me growing up. In the same way, many of those childish cartoons played a role in your upbringing. But as an adult, you're like, no, I'm longing for something more. I'm longing for something more. 
And so that's the point that Paul is making. He's saying, listen, the, the world that we now live in, and I know it's incredible and you enjoy it and you experience God, but he's saying there's something more waiting for you. And it'll be like when you watch those cartoons as a kid, you were like, this is incredible. But if someone was to, to give you a glimpse of the future to say, well, this is what it's going to look like when you're older. You're going to be watching Avatar. It's going to be insane. You go, I mean, this is great, but I, I'm longing. I'm longing for this, for, for when Christ returns to restore the kingdom. And so Paul says that this is how we are to understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They have their place today. They do. But so many of us get, get fixed on them as if they are the complete. And he's saying, no, friends, they are just pointing to the great, to the everlasting, to the incredible, to the full HD. Have you noticed how, how, how all gifts are temporary? Let's, let's pick one. Think of miracles. All miracles are temporary. They're phenomenal and they're great, and I wish I would see more of them. But they're all temporary. Manna from heaven. Guys, how amazing would it be to see bread fall from heaven? But I'm pretty sure the next day, people were like, yeah, I'm hungry again. Water from a rock. A couple hours later, I'm thirsty. Giving sight to the blind, they grow old and their eyes fail them again. Raising from the dead. I am pretty sure somewhere in the Middle East sits a tombstone with the name Lazarus on it. Why? Because he died. They're incredible, but they are temporary. They are there to point us to the eternal. And so our temporary miracles that we experience are meant to point us to the eternal miracle that is found in our salvation. So manna from heaven is to point us to the fact that Jesus is our daily bread. Water from a rock is to point to the fact that Jesus is the only one that will satisfy us. He's the only one that can satisfy our thirst. Sight to the blind is to point to Jesus, that he's the only one that can open up our eyes so that we might see the works of the evil one and actually see Jesus for who he is, the author and perfecter of our salvation. Being raised from the dead is to point to Jesus, that he has conquered death and sin. And that only in him do we find newness in life. I'm not trying to downplay the gifts. I'm just saying make sure that they act as a finger pointing to the sun and that the focus is not on the finger. The second illustration he uses to make the point that what we experience now is partial and what is coming will be perfect is in verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully. He, he, he's talking about looking into a mirror. Now back in the day, in Paul's day, uh, they didn't have mirrors like we have today, right? They would use like a, a brass steel. And so it didn't really give a true reflection of the person looking in. And so he's like, listen, what we experience now is like looking into that mirror. You see bits and pieces. But there's coming a day where you will see face to face. Face to face. When Paul says that we see in a mirror dimly, he means that spiritual awareness and insights that we enjoy now are but a dim reflection of the awareness and the insights that we will experience in the world to come. 
In that new world, we will see, we will not see dimly as in the reflection of a bad mirror, but face to face. This could make us sad. I, c- I can almost feel how this might leave us going, oh, but really? That is so limited. It's so limited. But my hope is that it would encourage us to hope for the world that is to come. That it would encourage us to hold on to the hope that we have in Christ. See, in those moments when the light suddenly dawns on us spiritually, we experience great wonder and joy. When we gather like this on a Sunday and we experience impartial, we should leave going, man, I can't wait for Jesus' return. Because this is just a trailer attraction. It's just a trailer attraction to the ultimate movie that is to come. We want others to enjoy the vision that we have seen. Just imagine. Just imagine then what it will be like when the world to come is ushered in. There is no more pain, no more frustrations, no more challenges, no more hurt, no more death. verse 13, once again, Paul compares what we experience now with what we will experience in the new world. We know imperfectly now, but in the worlds to come, God will reveal the spiritual mysteries completely. Just as God knows us fully now, in the world to come, we will also know God fully. Verse 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, the Corinthian Christians with their Greek heritage, they they prized philosophy, their wisdom, their, their knowledge, and their mysteries. Paul acknowledges all those things, but however, draws their attention to the higher values. He says there's something more important, faith, hope, and love. Now, faith and hope are important for this present world, but won't be needed in the world to come. See, for the time being, we know God by faith. We're hanging on to faith. We know God by faith, and we have hope for the future. We're hoping on His return. But when God's kingdom has fully come, we will know God face to face and we will embrace the future. So this faith, this faith that we hold on to will be fulfilled. And the hope that we long for, we will see and experience and enjoy. Hope does not continue when its object has been realized. Faith likewise relates to that which is yet unseen. But when Jesus returns, we will see him fully, our faith fulfilled. Love is in a different category. Love is different to these two. See, love will be as applicable in the new restored world as it is here. The primary difference is that we know love imperfectly. But in the perfect kingdom of God, we will love perfectly, even as God loves us. Paul is advocating that if we are to see the the wonder of God in his transcultural church, this is something that we long for as Rooted Fellowship. If we are to see the wonder of God in his transcultural church, then the highest virtue in the body of Christ, the highest gift that we must earnestly seek for, because Paul says it in chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12, Paul says that you must earnestly seek the higher gift. If we are to see the wonder of God in his transcultural church, then we must earnestly seek love, to love God unconditionally and to love one another sacrificially, to be driven and sustained by God's love. Friends, in a, in a world where churches are constantly looking for the next miracle, the next healing, the next prophecy, all things that we should plead to God for, I believe the greatest miracle that the church will see is if we genuinely love one another. 
think about that for a moment. If we honestly and genuinely loved one another, what a miracle. I believe the world would look and be like, y'all are raising people from the dead. That's incredible. Uh, uh, giving sight to the blind. Wow, man, that's really, really cool. But you guys, you guys really love one another. Unconditionally and sacrificially. You're willing to give up possessions because you love one another. I truly believe in the context that we live in now, that would make the front page. That here's this church and its members who are willing to give 30, 40% of what they have and want nothing in return because they are driven and sustained by the love of God. I'm hoping to see that miracle here. And so as we think about the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and as we earnestly seek the gifts of the Holy Spirit. My hope is that at the top of that list would be love because that is the thing that we will be questioned on when Jesus returns. He will ask each and every one of us, did you love? Did you love? And my hope, my hope is that we might answer yes and not just in word but in deed. And then we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.